This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the porncast where, unlike other girls, we don't brag to our exes when we get married, but we sure as hell definitely send them a copy when we're in Hustler. I'm your host, Alice Vaughn, and with me is my fantastic co-host, Kate Kennedy, and bitch, we're in Hustler! Woo! Hello. Yes. Very exciting. Two and a half years. Love the good people at Hustler. I've never been more excited to be in a publication before. I don't know about you, but this is, I mean, I'm definitely going to print it out. I'm going to frame it. I've had like stuff in like the post and like in the journal, but fuck it. I'm in Hustler. This is exciting. And there's a sexy photo of me and a great photo of all of us in there. So... I'm proud. Uh, definitely can't share this with my parents, but I could share this with all of you. <laughs> I totally shared it with my parents the first time I had a byline in Hustler. I would also like to state for the record that despite my like three-year adult film career, the only time I've been in Hustler is for my words. That's I was never in it for pictures, never did a movie for them. I've written a couple other articles for them in this. That's it. I thought you at least did like a, one of their production companies you worked with negative negative ghostwriter <gasps> yeah nope never did sometimes you do films for like devils or like zero tolerance or whatever and then it ends up as a hustler movie but none of mine ever went to hustler they do and i actually asked uh their like casting guy about this because i i went to their office when i first started for like a go see and they really liked me but i started at 23 and hustler is one of the few that's very strict about if you're a teen you actually need to be like 19. Oh, wow. So even though the whole time I was in porn from like ages 23 to 25 or 26, like even though I played a teen the entire time of my career, I never was an actual teen. So I never got to. They're nice folks. Kathy, how do you feel about that? And they say there's no ethics in porn. (sighs) Yeah, they're not lying to you. They're all about free speech. So, by the way, guys, that third voice is writer uh, Kathy Reisnowitz uh, with bylines in The Week, Newsweek, Forbes, Daily Beast. You've seen her stuff in Reason. Also, you are one of the few writers that I know that, aside from having a substick, but you also have an OnlyFans, which, slay girl, I feel like more writers need to hop on the OnlyFans train. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see more of my favorite writers naked. Exactly. I mean, who doesn't want to see Jonathan Haidt? Naked. <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis. Chuck Palahniuk. I'm going to go Ezra Klein. Steven Pinker. Stephen King. Matt Iglesias. <laughs> Arl Stein. <laughs> Goosebumps. Yeah. Nicholas Kristoff. No. <laughs> no. Yes. Sorry. Never, but I want, never, but I want to see his nudes. Fair enough. Mm. Only to mock, only to snark. <laughs> okay, fair. Maybe he'll f- he would finally understand... Yeah. If he had an OnlyFans. Possibly. No, he wouldn't. Just, you know, no. There's plenty of people that have OnlyFans that don't understand. He'd be like, guys, I trafficked myself. (laughs) Oh, I had a joke about that for a while because I have a huge human trafficking kink. Person, like ethically, consensually, but I have a huge kink (laughs) for it. I've literally tried to get myself in those situations so many times. I did porn for three (laughs) years and no one tried to manipulate me. Nobody tried to pimp me out at no point. <laughs> and I was like, I actually want this. Like, <sighs> damn, damn, that's rough. I know, anecdotal evidence, but I do think it holds up. They should have asked me about that. What about like, <laughs> it's a lot harder. Human trafficking somebody into studio porn in 2021 is the dumbest fucking idea. 
Like porn is so hard. It's really competitive. It's a ton of work and it costs thousands of dollars to do it. Hey, here's someone who's exceptionally unenthusiastic for this scene. How do you feel about this? That's really what we're looking for is like someone who looks like they were forced to be there. That's what I want in porn for sure. Yeah. Even like the really hardcore BDSM ones, they still are like, oh, but you should enjoy it. I'm like, I am enjoying it, but my way of enjoying it is crying. (laughs) That's part of it. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I mean, they're happy tears. No, they're like, I really want to be like scared and upset. Like people go to haunted houses like it's nothing, but I get my jollies this way and suddenly it's problematic. (laughs) (laughs) And then you were talking actually before the show, we were talking about how like no one ever copies you on social media. Like no one ever tries pretending to be you. Yeah, no, nobody ever uses me to catfish. Like for years, the first several years I was in porn, no fake accounts, nothing. And even now, maybe every like three to four months, I'll get a message saying that someone's like using my pictures on Instagram, but it's always like a brand new account with like one follower and then they get deleted right away. So it cannot happen more than five or six times a year that someone tries to do that. And for a while, I was like a little offended about it because all my friends in porn were like constantly dealing with fake accounts and getting them taken down. And they're constantly bitching about it on Twitter. And I was like, why doesn't anybody want to be me? I have never (sighs) once had someone impersonate me online, but I did have a parody account. It was like a combination of me and I want to say Otto von Bismarck. And so when you get a parody account, you've made it like I'm done. I don't need to do any more work. Yeah, absolutely. You and Otto von Bismarck. Um, please tell me more about this. Like, what kind of... <laughs> is this similar to a Jiffy Loop? I'm not familiar with the Otto von Bismarck situation. They did not tweet enough for me to really get an idea of what they were going for with it, unfortunately. Uh, I hate to admit, but that was my parody account. Well, you know, at least someone wanted to parody you. I've never seen a parody of the show. I've never seen a parody of us. Kate and I, you know I've what? I've never been parodied. If you want to parody us, if you want to become our pimps, or at least Kate's pimp and human trafficker, uh, email us, info at two girls, one mic. We are the show full of consensual human trafficking and copycat accounts, apparently. This is what we're here for. The punchline for that joke, by the way, was every time I get taken, they give me back. <laughs> We tried a human trafficker, but... You tried, you know. My original, like, 15-minute stand-up set was very heavy on human trafficking. There was a lot of human trafficking material. Like, it's in the news, it's timely, it's something I have experience in. So it's like, oh, cool, like, I can actually... It ended in a bit about how I hope that Ghislaine Maxwell starts a prison podcast called Human Traffic Queen. I mean, if Tiger King can get season two, why can't we have this? I'm interested. I would listen to the shit out of that podcast. And maybe like the money from it could go to victims because you can't make money off of crimes. Like that's a law, I think, especially in New York. Can you podcast out of prison? I can't imagine that you could. Like I would imagine you can. Yeah. They're TikToking in prison. I saw that. I actually think for a lot of reasons, it would be very interesting to hear podcasts from incarcerated people, like as far as like the prison abolition movement goes. And like, it would just be very interesting. I can't, I mean, I guess I could kind of see why the prisons wouldn't want you to do it because you'd be like reporting on human rights violations. But I think that would be really interesting and and cool if that was a thing. Not not specifically with her, but just in general, like prison (laughs) podcasts. Like, I just think that would be like, it's an interesting medium, you know? 
Oh yeah, day 36. I again ate something completely indigestible and I haven't had taken a shit in about 4 weeks. And by the way, that is like going to be partially true considering we did have once someone on the show who was in prison. But yeah, she was telling me like the two things that are pretty big and we were discussing this after her show. And I was so sad that we never recorded as Patreon content either because she was talking about how Three things I, I distinctly remember from that conversation, which I don't know why I was not recording this, which was number one, the food wasn't digestible. So people rarely took shits, which was kind of like number two. Um, <laughs> funny enough, I did not mean to do that. Uh, and then number three, uh, makeup, you made it yourself out of like deodorant and colors from magazines and stuff like that. Oh, and mm. then there was this whole thing about like Gaddafi and doing business with him and how like one of her girls was apparently sleeping with Gaddafi's sons. Why I don't have that recorded this is completely on me. I knew a couple escorts that went to go see princes in Dubai and they did offer me that at, at one point while I was uh, escorting uh, a couple of years ago. They're like, do you want to go to Dubai? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I was like, I will end up in prison so fast. No one will ever see me again. And that's not the kind of taken I want to do. I can't keep my mouth shut that long. Like, obviously. And as soon as I said it, they're like, yeah, no. I was like, okay, cool. Kathy, have you had offers from princes yet? I have not. I am also too mouthy for particularly authoritarian regimes, unfortunately. So I would probably also decline that offer. But that'll be when I've made it the second time is when I get an offer to escort in Dubai. So how long have you been, by the way, covering sex work? I know that you've been doing it for a while now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it kind of depends on what you mean by cover. I've been a libertarian for a really long time. And so I remember I was in Germany and like... 2013 and took a walk on the red light district. And that was my first encounter with like legal prostitution. And so I wrote about that and I wrote about how I thought prostitution should be legalized in the daily beast. And I want to say 2013, 2014, got a lot of very strongly worded email from sex workers informing me that the quest was for decriminalization instead of legalization. So that was, that was super helpful. I just had to do that to one of my friends the other day. To correct them. Yeah, she was tweeting about, and it's a girl I really like who's a writer here in LA uh, who also does podcasts. And she was tweeting about how uh, Angeline is running for California governor with fuck yeah all the way. And she's like, now I'm like sending them emails to legalize sex work. And I was like, asterisk, decrim. I know it sounds really pedantic. And I felt bad because it's like someone I like and know. And it was like very clearly like a mistake. But I was like, it, I know it sounds really pedantic, but like there is a difference and it's important. And luckily she was a really good sport about it and was like, oh, I corrected it. I sent them another email. I was like, thanks. That's awesome. I appreciate you. That's good. Yeah. And then her campaign manager liked my tweet. So that was cool. Very good. Yeah. No, it's like a huge deal to sex workers. And now I'm the one correcting everyone. But yeah, back in the day, I needed correction. But it's important because, you know, at the time we didn't know and then we evolve and change in our views because changing your views is okay, people. Some might say it's good. Some might say it's a sign of growth as a human being. I just don't think that you like get to opine about things if you don't change your mind when new information becomes available. Like Absolutely. your intellectual card is revoked if you are consistent in the face of new information. And sex work is such an incredibly nuanced issue with so many sides to it because like the experience, and I talk about this all the time with people, the experience of like a street sex worker, many of whom I'm friends with, is 
far, far different than my experience doing studio porn in Los Angeles, which is very different than the experience of a cam girl in Missouri, which is very different than the life of an escort in Manhattan. Like they're all such different jobs that fall under this big red umbrella. Absolutely. I I like to use the analogy of like the food service industry, right? Like there's so many classes and classifications and strata within food service that yeah, you really can't speak for, if you're a restaurant owner, you can't speak for someone who operates, uh, you know, works at a food cart. Like, it's just, it's different. That's a very good analogy for that. I've never thought about that. That's great. Unless you're an illegal food cart, and if you're in New York and Andrew Yang, you know, wants to get rid of you. Hey, look, I'm... Have you licensed? I'm not an Andrew Yang Sorry. fan. But I would support the uh, creation of a separate lane for taco trucks in L.A., I love taco trucks. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But I've been stuck behind one too many trying to get somewhere I was going. And like the LA trifecta of getting stuck behind things is like taco cart, Coyote Studios truck, film shoot. Look, I still don't understand how Hillary Clinton lost when Donald Trump said there's going to be taco trucks on every corner. How? Totally. How do you lose? They just want traffic. I'm not going to lie. They draw a crowd. It can be really annoying. I love them. I love them. It's a great part of the culture here. But I would be lying if I was saying like I'd never driven back late at night from like Burbank and gotten like stuck in a traffic jam behind a taco cart and been a little salty about it. So that said, did you guys hear? Because speaking of Manhattan and decrim and this difference between decrim and legalization, y'all heard about what's going on where uh, and I'm gosh I'm now a southerner I'm saying y'all uh, Manhattan won't prosecute prostitution but it'll still go after clients so you know the district attorney's office said recently that they're going to do a shift they're not going to prosecute sex workers but essentially they're going to go after clients <laughs> the Nordic model from what I'm hearing it's the Nordic model and then it's worse a little bit than the Nordic model because at least in the Nordic model, you're not supposed to arrest sex workers either. But this, if you don't actually decriminalize, you just say we're going to deprioritize. Police are still going to arrest and harass and in some cases rape sex workers and our clients. So it is a tiny, minuscule step in the right direction, but we can't, I think, overestimate. I think what it is less than like a huge move forward practically and legally, is I think that it's a sign that the culture is moving in the right direction. And I think we can look to other things as well. For example, in 2020, for the first time, a majority of voters said that they favored decriminalizing sex work. A large portion of Republicans even said that they favored ending vice stings, vice squads uh, for prostitution. So yeah, I mean, I I think there's progress, but it's just, A, like, I don't want to overstate how much this is going to help. And especially, like, as we deal with over-policing and over-criminalization, like, over-criminalization is the beating heart of police abuse. And so to leave these laws on the books and to give police the ability to come in and harass and abuse sex workers, it just creates more totally unnecessary encounters with police, which then have the potential to rise to the level of violence. And they just don't need to be happening at all. So... It's a good first step, but uh, there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I also don't want to get into a situation where we have something like the Nordic model and Nordic model proponents are calling the Nordic model decriminalization. And so people might be confused and think that, okay, then we've decriminalized and that's not accurate at all. Yeah, because I know, for example, like Senator Liz Kruger has actually 
propose the Nordic model in a New York local state. And it's funny because I called her office multiple times and when I told them, I was like, hey, I'd like to have a conversation regarding the Nordic model. Here's my credentials. It was funny. They initially listened to me. And then when I started like providing some supporting evidence, they were like, oh, we don't have time. You don't have time? Isn't your job to listen to your constituents? Eliza Owens for a district attorney of New York. Let's let's go for her. She has the time and she wants full decrim. So I will say again too, like the when it comes to deprioritizing, again, it becomes targeting the lowest rung like of sex workers economically and opportunity wise. Like if you're escorting, I very briefly escorted in New York for like a couple of days. I could not stand the men there. They're terrible. <laughs> Awful. It was, I literally, I didn't make it three days. I was like, these, they sucked. <laughs> I was like in a, like, I like was in a really nice, like four-star hotel in Midtown. It, my, my hotel was like $250, $300 a night. Like it, you had to stay in like a very, cause I was, I was a very like high priced, like escort. Cause I was doing porn. So I was, my rate was really, really high. And I had like an agency and a book and everything. And I was, you know, seeing this beautiful hotel, but these guys would come in from like Wall Street and like the financial district. And they were just like gross. They had just come from work. They're really pushy. Like in LA, when I was doing it, I saw the same regulars. I would go to like beautiful, like mansions down by the coast. It was like Beverly Hills, the Four Seasons. Like everyone was very polite. They're really nice. Everyone's very clean. Like after like the third or fourth one, I was like this, I can't do this. I called them. I was like, I quit. But they're not going to prosecute or go after people that are working in those $300 a night hotels. They're going to go after street sex workers, which are predominantly uh, minorities and, and, and women that don't have those kinds of opportunities necessarily. And it's just a mess. And this is in conjecture. The ProPublica just did a study looking at where police were arresting sex workers and who they arrested. And it's just overwhelmingly people of color, men and women of color. Absolutely. No, nobody. I mean, like they had it down to such a science that they would tell us if we were showing up at like the Beverly Hilton or like the Four Seasons or whatever, the Ritz, like to dress like you're someone's trophy wife that just got back from yoga or Pilates. Don't dress like a hooker. Like I bought, I had a bunch of like really nice, like active wear outfits and I would wear like really nice sneakers and a fake ring. And so I looked like I was just this guy's trophy wife coming back from wherever and not a hooker. Like, but it was down to like a science. Oh gosh, I had so many women in New York too. I know exactly that image you just you know described. Exactly what I'm I wearing like, active right? wear as we record this podcast. What the hell? Yeah, it was all like Lululemon. It was not like the stripper heels. It was not those level of escorts don't look like you think they look. And also they're generally women that have that means and kind of like ability to blend in. And so what it becomes is the people that don't have like the economic status to be able to blend in and fake it. Those are the people that, you know, and I mean, like I see people on the street, like right near my house all the time. There's a corner that's very big for prostitution. And I like, cause you feel a kinship with them also. But also you have to like check your privilege and recognize that like I might know what my experience was like, but I have no idea what theirs was like. I know from my friends and from talking to them and and from, you know, being a sex worker somewhat, but I would never say that I understand what that's like. You know, you can only listen. I just think it's so uniquely American that like 
you need to be this rich to like safely whore. Yeah. Right? Like whoring costs a shit ton of money. It costs safely. so much fucking money to be a whore. Yeah. If you want to have some semblance of like some kind of safety, yeah, you need to yeah. be wealthy already. Like that's absurd. And white, of course. Yeah. Even doing porn, getting into porn costs thousands of dollars off the bat. Because when you first get in, you have to buy an entire wardrobe for it. You have to do the makeup, the hair, the tan, the nails, the transportation to and from. I knew girls that would come out to LA to work in porn and they would go back broke because they were spending $100 an Uber to get to every set. If you're only making $800 a scene, you're paying your agent out 10, 15% plus another $100 in transportation costs and another however many $100 in wardrobe and everything else. You go back with no money. I don't want to say it's a scam because I do think that they kind of tell you what you're getting into. But like I moved to LA with 10 grand. And I struggled for the first year. And I had literally had $10,000 and I was still struggling. I think people have this idea of the porn industry that's very stuck in like the 70s and 80s when it Mm -hmm. actually was like super profitable. Yeah. And then the internet came and like completely changed the economics of it. But it didn't change our understanding of the economics of it. Absolutely. I think most in most people's minds, and I literally just corrected somebody about this on Reddit yesterday because I saw the same thing where someone was like, what's ethical porn? There's tons of abuse in porn. And I was like, hi. Mm. I was like, I'm a sex worker. You're going to roll like three paragraphs to this person. I'm like explained like how much it is. And uh, actually we ended up like, I was like, you can totally DM me. I'm really open about it. I'm not like mad at you. I'm just like trying to clear this up. And like, she ended up being really cool and we're like DMing and she sent me like a shit ton of questions. And I was like, yes, this or whatever. It's so frustrating because I've seen even like whole podcasts start on the premise of, well, we just want to promote ethical porn. It's like, all right, well, the most ethical porn you can possibly promote is people's own content, like their OnlyFans, because that's the content they want to produce, that they want to put out, that they're doing with their friends. If you're going to, you know, go via ethics, that's kind of, I guess, the easiest way to gauge because that person is the content creator and they have the most control. It's not like a studio is running their OnlyFans. That said, you know, are there good studios? Yes, that are very ethical. There Are there shit studios? Yes, there are plenty of them. So it's harder to suss out, but it's just so frustrating to me when people come to me and they're like, I want ethical porn. I'm like, okay, do you plan to pay for your OnlyFans? Do you plan to pay for a person's content? And the answer is no. There's tears to this though. And I actually included this in my response because I agree. The gold standard for like ethical porn consumption is finding someone who you like, whose values align with yours and paying them directly. Gold standard. Absolutely. You can also find a studio that you like whose ethics like align with yours and buy a membership to that. But I recognize that people don't view porn as something they should pay for. And that's like a societal problem. But I'm not going to go around screaming at people to pay for it because that's I'm just going to lose my voice. So worst case scenario, if you decide to go the Pornhub route, just make sure that the videos you're watching were uploaded by the person with the verification to it because we still get paid for those. Like we still get 30% of like the gross ad revenue. It's not a ton of money, but it does work out. And also like if you're watching my video that I put on Pornhub, you know that I'm okay with it. I think all this is legitimate, but I just want to take a step back and be like, what bothers me about the conversation is we've kind of like tacitly accepted the premise. And when you think about it, it's like, from all indications, 
you know, being an agricultural worker is a lot more unpleasant and exploitative than being an adult film star. And so I'm like, why don't we talk about ethical farming? But we do, but it's only about the animals. When we talk about ethical farming or like ethical food consumption, it's always about how the animals are treated. Why don't we ever talk about how the agricultural like humans are treated? And why are we having this like huge debate about ethical porn when we're not having a huge debate about the ethics of the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the television that we watch? Like, Actors are also treated terribly outside. The entire reason we're having this debate about ethical porn is because we already view some porn as something ethically dubious. And, like, that's bullshit. Like, it's not. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it, it ties right back to the human trafficking thing, too. And that's something I say all the time, which is that the vast majority of human trafficking occurs in the agricultural and domestic labor spheres. Yes, exactly. Like, the vast majority of people that are trafficked are migrant workers and domestic laborers. Sex trafficking is really splashy. It sounds really like sexy for lack of a better word. So it gets all of the press when the people that are like and the people that are actually suffering get nothing and no attention. And I think that's ridiculous. And yeah, I would go. I would agree with that, too, that like having been on both sides of like mainstream Hollywood and porn Hollywood, like I was treated way better in porn. (laughs) Like comedy stand-up comedy television writing all of that shit like uh people treat actors like shit people treat comics like shit like in porn i was always treated with a lot of respect it speaks to that these conversations are not about what they're really about when we talk about ethical porn or we talk about human trafficking or we talk about exploitation in the sex industry it's not about making life safe for sex workers. It's not about making porn ethically. It's about controlling women's choices and controlling people's sexuality. And that these are, I don't want to say completely fake, but they're just, they're fronts. They're yeah. socially acceptable ways to talk about things that are actually not socially acceptable anymore, but that a small minority of people are very invested in continuing to push forward. And so people who don't know what the actual agenda is are like, oh, yeah, of course I want ethical porn. Of course I want to end exploitation. Of course I want to end human trafficking. Not realizing that these are moral panics created by people who want to simply control people's sexual choices. Yeah. I was watching, and guys, this is going to be bad since this is my lack of knowledge in this industry, but I was watching the uh, documentary Seaspiracy recently. This is the third time we've talked about this. No, this is the second time we've t- it's spoken the about this. It's the third time you brought time. up Seaspiracy to me. Okay, Kane, cut this in. You can, I'm not no, gonna talk you can about keep bringing, it, bringing no, it up. It's just, no, <laughs> no, no. Cut it. I'm sorry. We're throwing this out. Can, Alice, bring it up. I don't, it's totally no. fine. It's my first time. No. There you go. No. I just still okay, haven't fine. seen it yet, so I'm, I'm, I will see it. I'll try. I don't like deep water, okay? I don't really want to watch it because I'm afraid of the ocean. And everyone's talking about it, so I feel really left out, which is one of my like top five least favorite things. Like I watched the last four episodes of Game of Thrones just because I didn't want to be left out. <laughs> That's like my least favorite thing is when everyone's talking about something and I haven't seen it yet or can, like and then I just feel really left out of the cultural discourse. Okay. Also, how are we talking about how Pornhub is bad for women and we all love Game of Thrones? Thank yeah. you. Hmm, weird. That said, never watched Game of Thrones before. I'll be on whatever side you need me to be on for that. I have no parties or teams. I feel the same about sports, so go team. Go incest. I guess. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's the clip they're going to use someday. I don't know for what, but that's what they're going to clip. Oh, no. How are they allowed to show real incest on Game of Thrones, but it has to be step on Pornhub? Like, I, that just seems dumb to me now that I think about it. And now there's stuck porn, which I'm so glad I retired before that became a thing. <laughs> I would not be able to do that. Like, I, I don't, I could not convincingly act like I'm stuck in like a washing machine. Like, I would bang my head so hard. Like, it, it would have, like, there's no way. I was like, ta- we were talking to Quasar about it, remember? Yeah. And he was like, explaining, I was like, oh my God, like, there's no way. I'm a pretty bad actress. You're also so tiny that I could see people being like, all right, Kate, so you're stuck in the shoe cubby. <laughs> people literally use me to, like, get things out of places that they can no longer reach. Like, I dated a guy that was a mechanic for a while, and I'm pretty sure the only reason he liked me was because I have tiny hands and could, like, fit into engines and grab things out. People call me for stuff like that. I'm a great person to help you move because I'm actually really strong, but I'm so small that I can like fit in that little, you know, when you have like a couch going up the stairs and you're like, pivot, pivot, I can fit in there. I would not advertise that that were true of me because then I would get a lot of inquiries, but. I honestly really enjoy helping people move. I also really like setting up Ikea furniture. I don't know, Kathy. I think you should promote it more. You're going to get more people on your OnlyFans tipping you and being like, hey, you know, if I could have a home renovation, here's what I would do. And here's some stuff that's definitely stuck behind the couch and or the dresser (laughs) that I'll never be able to reach. Yeah. (laughs) But my fantasy is eventually for that section of my house to be cleaned. There you go. So, Kathy, I was going through some stuff and I realized... On the show, I don't think we've talked about the Safe Tech Act yet, because if we're going to talk about people virtue signaling, I think we need to discuss, you know, what Congress is doing and or trying to pass, because it's the ultimate virtue signaling when you're doing it on a political level, in my opinion. It's a humble opinion. For sure. Yeah, the Safe Tech Act is... You know, I understand where the impulse comes from, at least. Like, I would say that unlike SESTA-FOSTA, which was a solution more or less in search of a problem, like, there's just not a lot of online sex trafficking happening in America. Like, it's extremely rare. And so to ban a whole class of speech, essentially, and not to mention that SESTA-FOSTA made finding sex trafficking victims more difficult— but at least, I mean, I think with the Safe Tech Act, the idea is to help to diminish the frequency with which people are harassed and stalked and, you know, threatened and hate speech. Some of that is already illegal, so it, it's a little duplicative. But other stuff is is not. And there could be an argument that platforms have insufficient incentive to censor or go after that kind of crappy online behavior. So... The Safe Tech Act, for our listeners who've never heard of it before, um, so it's a Safeguarding Against Fraud, Exploitation, Threats, Extremism, and Consumer Harms Act. So Safe Tech is the acronym. Sometimes I think they write these just to use fun acronyms. Totes. Probably. So if we could describe this, from what I'm aware of, I was reading one of your articles that said that it would hold companies liable for users' behavior, but it would also force small websites to spend at least a million dollars if not more, by one estimate, to prove courts that users aren't causing uh, one of the types of harm. And as you mentioned, you know, cyber stalking, harassment, civil rights violations, discrimination, and things like that. So is that everything that goes into it where it's like, okay, protocols may be set in place for all of these sites? 
So it's a little complicated, but I'll try to make it simple. Essentially, the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act created the modern web. And it did so by enabling websites to host user-generated content without being liable for every harm that that content might cause. What the Safe Tech Act does is it revokes Section 230 protections for websites where users engage in nine new types of harm. Not only are there is nine like a lot of new types of harm, but these types of harm are really broadly and ill-defined. What constitutes a civil rights violation? If I write a Facebook post, who knows whether that's hate speech or a civil rights violation? That's a matter that has to be determined by the courts. That's a problem because what it does is it makes these sites liable for what their users write in such a way that if harm is simply alleged, it's really expensive for those sites to defend against, which will mean that small websites with small budgets essentially like can't say anything controversial because doing so would put them at risk for a very expensive lawsuit that could shut them down. It's supposed to empower the powerless against the powerful, right? It's supposed to protect against civil rights violations. It's supposed to protect against harassment. Usually harassment, you know, is by someone powerful against someone less powerful. But what it will actually do is it will empower the already rich and powerful against anyone who might criticize them or say anything that they don't want said. Because at that point, only the most well-funded, largest websites with the most powerful friends are going to have the resources to defend themselves against these lawsuits. And so, for example, if you're a small blog who wants to write something about a rich person that may be unflattering to them, maybe someone's come forward with a sexual assault allegation, for example, or perhaps you've heard a rumor that they're abusive to their staff. Like, if you publish that information, even if it's true, the fact that they're going to sue you is enough to put you out of business because then you have to defend yourself against this lawsuit no matter how spurious it might be. And so online harassment and abuse and these things is certainly a problem and it definitely needs a solution. But if the solution comes in a form that disempowers less powerful people and further empowers already powerful people and stifles online speech— I would argue that that's not a good trade-off, and I think that we can look at the last major Section 230 carve-out, which is SESTA-FOSTA, and say, okay, well, that was a terrible trade, right? Well, we got dead sex workers. We got sex workers forced into the streets. We got widespread censorship of sex education materials, sex therapists, kids who want information on transitioning. Like, they are having a harder time finding that information as a result of SESTA-FOSTA, and it's done absolutely nothing to address the problem to which it was supposed to be aimed. And by all indications, is actually making that problem worse as well. So if the last major ill-considered Section 230 carve-out worked this poorly, then I think we need to be really hesitant before we implement another major Section 230 carve-out. What I found fascinating was in one of your articles I was reading, you linked to a congressional record from just August of last year of 2020, where tech companies, they sent in more than 45 million instances of child sexual abuse material to the DOJ from 2019 alone, most of which they declined to investigate. So it just shows me that 
even if hypothetically, you know, we said, no, we're doing this for the health and safety of the population and or we're doing it for the children, it's not actually going to be investigated. It's not going to be something that, you know, the Department of Justice is going to spend their time on for one reason or another. And it really is a lot of virtue signaling. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, we've seen this before as well. And you mentioned that, you know, smaller publications are going to suffer. We've seen the likes of like, you know, the Gawker Hulk Hogan lawsuit where Peter Thiel took out a whole business with one lawsuit. So this isn't unheard of. And frankly, I feel like other public, smaller publications have also gotten a lot of lawsuits as well. So to know that, oh, there's now all these new avenues that, you know, not only can people be already sued for things like libel, but for things where their users are posting content for because we're, you know, peeling back Section 230, it just sets a horrible precedent. I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, it doesn't pass, but, you know, it's a Biden era. Who knows? Yeah, anything's possible. But as another example, like, imagine if every person who levied a Me Too allegation on Twitter, if that person could easily sue Twitter for allowing that allegation to be posted, right? Like, you can easily see how this is going to be used by the powerful to stifle speech that would otherwise hold them accountable. But going back to the instances of child sexual abuse material, another thing I want to bring up is that there's this movement to investigate Pornhub and X videos. Christoph has been writing first about Pornhub and then last about X videos and how they're supposedly bastions of online sexual abuse material. But Facebook, by all objective measures, hosts a way, way larger amount of child sexual abuse material than any legal porn site in existence. And so, again, if the goal, if the actual goal of this crusade were to address child sexual abuse material or revenge porn or or any of these, like, actual problems, they would be going after Facebook. But it's not. That's not the goal. The goal is to shut down porn. And so, Kristoff is... He's either misleading people or he's misled himself. This is my opinion of him as someone that's like read a lot of his stuff. And also one of my writer friends from back in New York knows him. And when I brought him up the first time, he goes, fuck that guy. I fucking hate that guy. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's like lean into this. He is like a, a serial poverty porn creator, I guess I want to say. Like he loves to get in and decide that someone is the victim. It's like this very black and white thing for him. And like, it's not objective reporting. It's bad journalism. I was a journalism major in college. Uh, I went the advertising route, but I still had to take like journalism 101 and media law and media ethics. And like literally a sophomore in college, like a 19 year old that's taking media ethics could tell you why his reporting is problematic just from a very like very objective journalistic standpoint it's bad journalism i mean he's been caught like yeah making shit up and taking someone whose account was made up and uncritically yeah promoting it as if it were fact and he still has a job yeah at the new york times wait what did he do there was a sex trafficking survivor who told this harrowing story to Nicholas Kristoff about being trafficked. 
And a very cursory investigation revealed she was never sex trafficked. Like, she was lying about the whole thing. (gasps) He didn't do a cursory investigation, promoted the whole thing as fact, and uh, kept his job. Oh, wonderful. That was the worst example, but he's done this multiple times. And even in the reporting that he's done recently with Pornhub, for example— He's exaggerating the claims that he makes. So he makes claims about, like, the frequency and prevalence of uh, problematic videos on Pornhub, about search results. Like, when people have tried to replicate the claims that he makes, like, they're false. They're exaggerated. And that's my issue with the whole anti-porn movement is, like, they're not actually even lying about their goals. If you go to these—so Nichols Kristoff quotes Exodus Cry and Trafficking Hub, which are— evangelical organizations that straight up admit on their websites, we are trying to end legal porn. Like, we want to ban Pornhub. That is our goal. Their previous name was Morality and Media, and we are not making that up. Yeah, so, yeah, so the National Coalition Against Sexual Ex- Exploitation, yeah, they, he quotes them as well. And so to use these organizations as objective sources of fact, when not only are they honest about their actual agenda, but on their websites as well and in their materials, they promote falsehoods about pornography. They make claims about pornography that are simply false, like they're easily falsifiable. And so not only are these not objective, trustworthy sources of information on pornography, but they can't even be trusted to give accurate information about the topics that they're talking about. And so for Christoph to just use these as sources should, that Christoph still has a job drives me absolutely insane. But he's not the only one. Like, other journalists are also quoting these incorrect statements by these extremely biased, like, radical people as truth, and they're not. And and that's my thing is, like, if you want to critique the porn industry, like, absolutely. Like, there's plenty to critique about the porn industry. Why do you need to make shit up? Like, why do you have to lie? You know, just like, (laughs) if it's so terrible, just tell the truth about it. Like, don't lie to people about it. That's what drives me insane. And I would add too that like, because porn is highly regulated, like the way that it is, and I don't agree with everything the way that it's regulated because some of it's nonsense, but I cannot imagine how incredibly exploitative and abusive it would be if you banned legal porn. Because there's always going to be a market for it. There is. It's like the the cave paintings of Lusseau, people. Fucking people love seeing dicks and buttholes. They love it. They've done it for a millennium. They're not going to stop doing it. So if we push it all underground, then it's going to get really, really bad. It's the same with prostitution, with decrim. Like, if you get sexually assaulted as a sex worker, you have... Basically, no legal recourse. And that's what would happen with porn. And it would be awful. It's not like we have to make up scenarios about what might happen if you criminalize an industry. Like, we know how black markets work. They are literally always more dangerous. Like, you are literally advocating for a policy you know will result in more violence, deaths, and exploitation. Like, that's not a question. It will happen. That's what always happens. And so to paint this crusade as pro-woman, as pro-worker, as, you know, oh, we're, we're trying to save women, like, the fuck you are. No, you are trying to make life more dangerous for sex workers. And it's bullshit. And it's one thing to be a zealous, weirdo, religious crusader, 
But to me, it's just completely unacceptable that journalists are quoting them and using them as sources. Like, that is just... And I love when people are like, oh, the media is so liberal, the media is so progressive. It's like, no, uh, if you quote people who want sex workers dead in a story about sex workers, but you don't quote a sex worker, you're not a fucking progressive. I completely agree. And the problem is that I feel like not enough people even run sex work stories by sex workers at all. So you get all this misinformation running around. I at least have the decency to, when I have an article where people are asking me about sex work, I will make sure to, hey, Kate, can you just double check that I didn't fuck up here and or like seven other of my friends in sex work? Because I want to make sure that I'm not putting on misinformation at the end of the day. Because look, although we're covering the industry on this podcast, you know, I haven't had the same firsthand experience as a number of other people. And just because Kate has had one experience, she hasn't had all the experiences out there. Exactly. And I will in turn pass it on if you, and I think this has actually happened before, where it's definitely happened to me where I've been asked for quotes or to say something for an article by a journalist and been like, I don't have any expertise in this area. Yeah. I am a sex worker, but like, like I've been asked by so many like publications about like, well, what's camming like? I'm like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> like, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was, I joined MFC for like three weeks, four years ago and I was terrible. I made like $30. I have no idea what that person's life is like, but here's seven other people that I know that can give you this actual information. How dare you be resourceful? How dare I be a care about accuracy in media? <laughs> but that said, the gall, the gall of uh, both right and left publications to be if you see any chance ever the names Megan Murphy, Julia Bedell, Layla McNicholwatt. Fuck them. And I say left and right publications, including libertarian publications, because I've seen Spectator publish, uh, you know, some of those names. I've seen those names published on, like, the New York Post. Some of those names have contributed to the New York Times. Actually, rec in recent times, you had Layla McNicholwatt, the trafficking hub. McNicholwatt, I love you. The twat. Yeah, she spoke McNichol to their, That's I think that's the official. McNichol Layla McNichol Twat. Okay, perfect. We're going to stick with that it's name. It's not the correct pronunciation, but uh, that's the one we're sticking with. That is it's the, the German pronunciation. <laughs> but she spoke with the House Democratic Budget Committee regarding human trafficking. The bitch knows nothing! All she knows is the information that she keeps repeating over and over, which is really misinformation about Pornhub. And she's frequently conflating, you know, sex worker stories with that of actual people who have been trafficked. And she's addressing Congress. And I think that goes back to people's lack of respect for sex work, like as a profession in general, because it's the same kind of ethos that goes behind someone asking me about camming or asking me about street sex work. Like they just conflate it all together. Like it, it all gets lumped together. It's the same thing and they don't care. Like if you're, and, and again, that's the other thing about privilege too. Like if you're a pretty white girl and you want to talk about porn or sex trafficking, people are going to listen to you. Oh, actually, Which is ridiculous. excuse you, but I still have an issue with my friend Andrew Doyle because he did a fucking episode with 
Julia Bedell because someone at The Spectator said, hey, you should have a conversation with her because she's written for The Spectator before about porn and all the issues. Because, you know, talking about how porn is bad is apparently hot for The Spectator, I guess. It's counterculture, you know. So I don't know. Maybe groupers just need a new audience. I was so frustrated. I, I wrote out this whole paragraph of, hey, can you just have me on? Because here's like a million things wrong with what she said. And I can provide resources and evidence to counter everything that's wrong. Like she was promoting the Nordic model as a safe alternative for sex work. I don't even know that we need to like deplatform these people. Like I, I don't, Megan Murphy should be allowed to write what she wants to write, but... <laughs> It's like, are you going to take the proud boys of America, if they make claims about racism, are you going to print them without checking to make sure that they're accurate? I wouldn't. So why are we taking ideologues who we know provide disinformation about sex work and printing it without fact-checking it? So by all means, like, yeah, print Megan Murphy, like, print Jolie Bedell, like, whatever. But they're not trustworthy sources of accurate information. So if you're going to print what they have to say, like, fact check it. But they don't. And that's the issue because it's sex work. They make the assumption that, hey, you've looked into the industry and therefore you're the expert. I mean, I've actually shared a stage with Megan Murphy and I called her out on her shit in front of 500 people. It was really fun. Queen. Thank you. Queen shit. I felt really good about that. And apparently walking out from there, she felt... A little bit better about, according to her, about, I'm going to change my mind on decriminalization. Let's have a conversation afterwards. She never had that conversation afterwards. But I hope I slightly changed her mind in front of everyone. That's awesome. I actually, I had this whole thing I wanted to ask you about when it came to land use and zoning, because I wanted to learn about that. Yeah. I love zoning. Okay, Kathy, for someone who doesn't understand zoning, what is it? So zoning is the broad classifications for laws that say what can be done with and built on a piece of land. And there's different ways that um, cities zone off different structures. So you have everything from residential, industrial, agricultural, open spaces like playgrounds and parks, mixed use, urban development, historic. So this all sounds great. Why are we getting rid of it and or keeping it? Whew, man. Zoning is terrible. It sounds fine. It sounds like it, you know, yeah, absolutely. Like nobody wants to live next to a wastewater facility. The problem is that zoning has been used from the very beginning. The very first zoning was explicitly racist and today's zoning is implicitly racist. So we're not legally allowed to zone according to racism, but we can zone in such a way to have disparate racial impacts, and zoning has extremely disparate racial impacts. I'm a kind of a like a zoning conspiracy theorist because, and I've I've hard data to to back this up. Like, name a problem in American society, and I can implicate zoning in it: income inequality, lack of economic mobility, declining economic growth. Who shot JFK? Give me a few minutes. I'll I'll figure it out. Um, definitely something to do with inequality and zoning. The problem with zoning is that what it does is single-family zoning, especially anti-dent zoning, it says rich people live here and poor people live here. And one of the big problems with American society is that in American society, zip code is destiny. 
And so if you are not allowed to live in high opportunity areas, you are locked out of opportunity. You don't get the good schools, you don't get the good amenities, you don't get the good networks, and you don't get the good life. And so if we have this zoning that says you must be this rich to live here, first of all, it locks people out of economic opportunity, particularly low income and people of color. But second of all, zoning also increases the price of housing for everyone. The cost of housing has gone up precipitously in recent years, much, much, much faster. So in the bottom half, wages are stagnant, but the cost of housing is, has gone up. And so the bottom half has seen their real income decline precipitously because of the cost of housing. And the cost of housing has gone up because we're not building it. And we're not building it because where people would want to live is zoned for single-family homes. And in a lot of those places, we've either run out of land or people are having to commute really long distances. So Single-family zoning is implicated in rising obesity rates. Like, we have long commutes. Long commutes are implicated in so many things. Obesity, divorce, depression, all these things exacerbated by single-family zoning. I would like to say when I previously was like, I love zoning, I love talking about zoning. I don't love zoning. My focus for my work, like hitting both of my degrees. I love talking to you. This is great. Because my other one was architectural history with like a focus on urban planning and development. And uh, yeah, you literally can trace back an exceptional amount of like racial tension and discrimination to specifically like the Highway Act of 1956. Like the Federal Highway Act, which created the interstates that we all use to get around and created those long commutes, specifically bisected minority communities and people of color communities, neighborhoods that never recovered. And uh, like I'm from Denver. I'm from a small town outside of Denver. And literally uh, I-70 was built to run directly through a majority minority neighborhood that they then put a super fund site on. So it's like, hey, not only is this highway going to run directly through your school so your kids can't learn, uh, but also you're going to have like higher rates of cancer, higher rates of asthma, higher rates of all of this shit. And it just turns into a nightmare. And now I live in Hollywood where it's almost impossible to get things built. And the only things we're building are luxury condos, despite the fact that nobody can afford them and they all sit empty. So cities across the country have zoned in such a way as to place high pollutant parcels in communities of color. And so you can actually measure that Black Americans are exposed to more pollution than white Americans as a result of the zoning. And we know certain pollutants like lead decrease IQ. And so Black children in America are growing up brain damaged by zoning. Zoning is also implicated in domestic violence. A lot of women can't leave their partners because rents are too high in their geographic areas. And so they stay in abusive relationships. Like zoning is just the worst. I didn't realize zoning caused so many societal problems. Me neither. Yeah, it really is the legal manifestation of or like legacy of like Jim Crow laws at the end of the day. It's legal discrimination for them to be able to do that. And then it leads into like redlining and then it leads into like gerrymandering. It turns into this whole mess where it's like we absolutely don't have to live this way as a society. There's no reason for this except for the powers that be wanting to continue this to be the way that we live. Is there a way we can deregulate some of this land use? It does have to be regulated to some extent, right? Because like you were, like Kathy was saying, nobody wants to live next to a wastewater treatment plant. 
Hey. And, and nobody should. So it does have to be regulated to an extent. But what if I want to? Do you want to? I'm a zoning absolutist. I actually don't think we need zoning at all because if you don't want to live next to a wastewater facility, like fucking move. That's the thing about it is that like, if you don't want to live somewhere, you should be able to sell your land and move somewhere else. Now, if you buy a piece of land and someone next to you or the government, for example, like puts a wastewater facility next to you, you know, maybe you could get some kind of amount of money because they've made your land less profitable or whatever. But this whole idea that I should be able to control what you do with your property is actually really bananas. I own my property and I should be able to do what I want on my property. You own your property. You should be able to do what you want in your property. But otherwise, if you don't like your neighbors, like find a different neighborhood. Like this whole concept is, I think, again, like we've accepted this framing where we're like, well, yeah, of course I should be able to tell you what you can do with your property. It's like, should you? Like, is that, has that worked out well for us as a society? Like, not super. I think it needs to be, and this is my opinion, because I do agree with you to like an extent, but I'm going to play devil's advocate just a little bit. I think you you do have to take in and like into account the context of change, like radically changing that sure. from the system we're in right now. Because, yeah. you know, saying like, oh, you don't like it, move moving costs thousands of dollars like it just does you know and also like you know think about like communities and you know where you live the space you inhabit your neighbors all of this kind of stuff that feeds into that so I do think there should be some regulations especially on again I'm from Colorado so it's a huge issue about like fracking is that nobody wants to live near fracking because it's really bad for you excuse you you mean freedom water freedom (laughs) water you're right freedom water fucking it's awful for the environment it's it destabilizes like we've had earthquakes in oklahoma we should not have earthquakes in oklahoma there's no fault lines there anyways things need to be divided up somewhat where it's like what school do you go to where do you go you know there should be choice but like at the end of the day it has to be it should be equitable i feel like i'm arguing for separate but equal here i'm not I'm just, (laughs) no, I'm just saying, okay. And like my perspective on this is obviously colored by my background, but like right now in Hollywood, uh, there's this huge thing going on where they want to build like a 40 story skyscraper, Hollywood's first skyscraper right next to Capitol records, which is on an active fault line, which means that thousands of people could be in here at any given time. It's not zoned for a high rise specifically because there's a, a fault line underneath it. And so they want to build this giant building with thousands of people, including senior apartments in it, that could crumble. But also, I think that good urban planning, and again, like we're, we're having to undo this massive legacy of what this has wrought on our country in the last hundred years. But like really good urban planning is one of the cheapest, most efficient ways to alleviate poverty. If you move the grocery store closer to the bus stop, to the school, to people's homes, right? If, if you don't have a car and you're not in, you're working 40 hours a week and you have like five kids, right? If you have to take two buses to get to the grocery store, you're not going to be there to help them with their homework at night. And those are things that exasperate this cycle of poverty. So this idea that we could make cities function better, more efficiently, I think is a good thing. We're just having to deal with this really awful legacy of what it has been used for so far. But I I do see it as having the potential for good. Yeah, I don't think we can look at urban planning 
and point to really any successes thus far. No, not so far. But it has the potential to. You know what else does? Individuals maximizing their own economic interests. And that's actually produced good results in some cases, especially as it pertains to urbanism. So what I'm hearing is capitalism works. I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that building works and market forces, absent zoning, incentivize building. And that's what we want to see more of. What about like, uh, I'm just asking now because I'm just curious, like protected, like historic zoning, historic property no? no, 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 no. Oh, my God. But no. what about when it comes to like the character of, of cities and towns? You mean the racist dog whistle? <laughs> Protect neighborhood character is 1000% a racist dog whistle. It definitely is. It absolutely is. I'm curious. I want to hear your argument for why it's a dog whistle. Why protect neighborhood character is a dog whistle? Some people haven't heard this argument. Well, what is meant by protect neighborhood character is keep my community wealthy and white. So I actually have some good quotes in some of my writing about it's not the something, it's the people, right? Like they will come out and say like, we don't want low income people in our community. We don't want brown people in our community. That is the essence of race of, uh, sorry, not racism. Yes, racism, but zoning, right? That So the term is exclusionary zoning. This is single family zoning, zoning that mandates that... Uh, Yards have to be a certain size. Houses have to be a certain size. The idea is to exclude housing that would serve people who are lower income than the people who are already in the community. And those people generally are less white than the people who are already in the community. And we know that rich white communities absolutely do not want students of color in the same schools as white students. And because in America we we do schools by geography, white parents are very motivated to keep non-white parents out of their communities. And so when they say we want to protect neighborhood character, that's what they mean. Like that's what the phrase refers to. I absolutely agree that that phrase gets used that way. It totally does. I agree. I also see the flip side of it is that like I don't want to see Hollywood Boulevard demolished and turned into a banana republic. You know what I mean? So, like, how do we protect, like, legacy businesses, like, the the things that make our cities special, right? Like, out, outside of all of this, like, there are cultural institutions, like, like, places that are important, that are iconic in our cities. How do we protect those while making them, like, equitable, while making them accessible to everybody? And it's not only places like L.A. Like, I was in Charleston earlier this year, and it's a very historic city, so... Mm-hmm. I can understand when someone goes through, let's say, a city like that, where you look at the buildings and you're like, oh, this is beautiful. And then you realize, oh, wait, people couldn't make changes without consulting the city, which I mean, I've also read stories of like The Stand, a famous bookstore in New York, where it's owned generation by generation of the family. And they're like, yeah, we want to improve the place. And we literally can't because the city told us it's a historic building and we can't make changes mm-hmm. to our own property. So on one hand, I want to fight for them because as a property owner, you should be able to make the upgrades and changes you want to your own facility. But at the end of the day, people also make changes with the times. And because of that, you're going to change 
what it would look historically, you know, it's not going to look like a building from the 1800s or mm-hmm. early 1900s or wherever. Uh, it's frustrating because uh, uh, I look at some buildings and I'm like, mm, really kind of glad this still looks like this and it doesn't look like a piece of shit. I don't know. It, it's confusing. If you want to protect a historic building, there's a really simple way to do that. Buy it. <laughs> Purchase it. And then don't fuck it up. Like, that's it. Like, that's all you have to do. And so if people really value these buildings or these blocks, like, they can absolutely protect them. But to use the violence of government to mandate your aesthetic preferences, I think, is extremely, not only, like, theoretically problematic, but we see, like, examples of where it's extremely problematic. First point. Second point is, everything that you would point to and say, this represents this geography to me. Like, this is representative of of this area or this community. For example, Victorian houses in San Francisco. When they were built, people freaked the fuck out. People hated Victorians in San Francisco when they were built. They're like, they're destroying, they're ugly, they're tacky, blah, blah. Well, the market went out, they got built, now people love them. So this is a continual trend in American culture where we hate change, It happens, then we fall in love with it, then someone threatens it, and then we're like, oh, no, absolutely not. And so to use, again, the force of government to mandate our current aesthetic preferences going forward, you know, I understand the impulse, and I also don't want to see beautiful things replaced by ugly things, but I also don't want to see our racist, classist, exclusionary situation etched in amber and protected with violence. (sighs) All right, fine. And I mean, look, there's also a 13-minute video out there that exists of me in front of City Hall arguing with my local city council of why I can do what I want to my property and Airbnb it out and have an argument with them. So I do have issues of zoning. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I do think, again, sorry, I'm going to like play devil's out because I agree. Like, yeah, you can buy it if you want to protect it. But, like, the wealthy will also buy it. The wealthy will buy it because uh, I live in, like, one of the worst neighborhoods in Hollywood. And a tear-down bungalow in my neighborhood is $2 million. So the people that actually do inhabit these communities, they can't just buy it. It's the same with, like, there's a huge fight right now in in L.A. and in Hollywood to save bungalow courts. Because bungalow courts are dense housing. They're legacy housing. They have lots of history. They're beautiful and they provide a really great quality of life for that amount of dense housing, right? Because if you have a lot that could theoretically be filled by one single family home and instead you have 10 units on it, there's a huge push to try to save these bungalow courts from being demolished and they're being demolished all of the time. But I think to just say, well, you can just buy it. Most people that would be impacted by the changes in these communities are not in a financial position to be able to just buy it. Historic preservation does not benefit uh, low-income people. It is, it's a large part of why low-income people can't afford housing. And so we've got to look at the actual impacts of historic preservation policies. Yeah. And so, I mean, if we did demolish these bungalows and replace them with like more dense housing, I mean, the only reason we're even talking about demolishing these bungalows as opposed to single-family home, homes is zoning. And so... Yeah, let's attack the problem at the root and so that we can have abundant housing. No, that's actually the problem with them is that they're already the land is already zoned for multi-unit housing. 
So instead of having these 10 units where everyone has a little yard, a little garden, you know, and, and they're used, they used to be ubiquitous. They used to be everywhere. They were very cheap to live in when they were built, like 100 years ago. They're very much like solidly lower middle class to working class. And so the idea is to then demolish them. But the problem, especially what we see in L.A., and I like always keep up with this, is that there's these mandates to if you're going to build multi-unit housing, X amount of units has to be affordable housing, which I feel like the theory is good. It doesn't seem like it works. And and I really don't like when they're like, oh, but there's a separate entrance for low-income housing. Like, that's fucking garbage. That doesn't seem to be working either. So I don't know. But, like, the majority of of L.A. is zoned for single-family homes. Yeah, which is a problem, yeah. Right. We wouldn't be arguing about—we wouldn't be demolishing low-income homes first for dense housing if we didn't have most of L.A. zoned single-family. We would be demolishing single-family homes and building dense housing on them because that's where, like, A, there's just a lot more land, and B, those are usually where people want to live. But if we're building multi-unit housing where each unit rents for $2,500 a month, that doesn't feel like super affordable. You've got to build a lot of housing to get prices down, but it can be done. It was done in Seattle. This is not an economic problem. This is not a technological problem. This is a political problem. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Like right up the block from me is this huge condo building going up that I don't know how many of them are affordable, but I know it's not affordable housing. And I have no idea who's going to fucking rent these apartments. They're right on the freeway for like three grand a month. And they just keep, and I I don't understand all of the like political intrigue that goes into these decisions, but I do know that they just keep building luxury condos and they just sit empty. I mean, like so much real estate here is empty while 65,000 people live on the street. It doesn't make any sense. One of the reasons that developers build so much luxury housing is that it is so expensive to build housing and it is so expensive to build housing because of the political situation. So if there's a very small amount of land that it's even legal to build housing on, then that land is very expensive. And then if there are all these requirements for the building, these bureaucratic hoops to have to jump through, right, that increases the cost of the building. And so It gets to a point where whether you're building low-income housing or high-income housing, it costs about the same because most of the money goes to labor, politics, and land. And so it doesn't make any sense for a developer to build low-income housing at that point. You have to build a lot of housing and you have to get the building of the housing to be like fairly cheap before you get to the abundant housing where people can actually afford it. And so, yeah, I mean, people look at it, it's like, well, they're only building luxury housing, so we should stop building housing. And it's like, no, we need to make building housing cheaper so we can get to affordable housing. I'm really glad we became the podcast about zoning. (laughs) Get three sex workers together, and what are we going to talk about? Zoning laws. Finally. Yeah. It's so weird, right? Because we've kind of gone, at least in the theory of it, my understanding is that we've gone back like 100 years and realized that like, wait a second... Because at the end of the day, housing is very important, but so is quality of life and community. And so we've really gone back like 100 years and realized like, wait a second, mixed use works better. It makes much more sense to put people within walking distance of things like grocery stores and doctor's offices and schools because that benefits low-income people. 
being able to easily access services that you need without having to be reliant on a car, which LA is notorious for. I have a very hard one spot in my parking lot of my building that has 42 units and 10 parking spaces. Like it took me two years to get it and I'm never leaving. My rent went up $25 this year, by the way, I would like to say. So pro rent control. But you also got a better place. I moved to a different apartment in my building. Yes, but it is slightly better. Oh, yeah. No, it's much better. It's twice the size of my other one. I I very much took advantage of this pandemic discount that we're all getting right now. If you every single person I know in L.A. has moved within the last year, if they could afford to stay, they've all moved because rents are down. And so everyone I know has moved to a bigger, nicer apartment. Every time I want to look at what's potentially affordable as a bigger, nicer apartment in New York, the answer is they won't show you because most of the buildings are empty and they only want to list like two, three units because they want to negotiate. So that's never going to happen for me. Um, And I don't want to have those conversations yet with them. I guess this is where we can wrap up. So for our listeners who want to see the full video version of this, you can head on over and support the show at twogirlsonmike.com. Uh, we have a support section. We have Patreon. We have PayPal. We have like something else where you could throw money at us. And I guess that's connected to a bank account. So choose one. And this week, we want to thank Frank Ives, Ghost of Barrel, Dave, Leon Cassip, Dave Weiner, Patrick Adamo, Bonnie James, Alexandra Dees, Leo Mave, Holishike, Howard Lee, Elisa, and many, many others. And again, if you want to become a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash two girls on mic. But Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find more of your work? Thank you so much for having me and dealing with me being very <laughs> argumentative. <laughs> I get heated about zoning. That's what this show is for. Yeah, this was fun. Okay, good. Uh, please find me at kathyreisowitz.substack.com. My newsletter is called Sex in the State, and I am fighting to destigmatize and decriminalize all things sex. I'm extremely active on Twitter at Kathy Reisenwitz. And um, I'm on OnlyFans. You can see me naked at uh, OnlyFans.com slash Kathy Reisenwitz. That is Kathy, C-A-T-H-Y, Reisenwitz, R-E-I-S-E-N-W-I-T-Z. And we will link to those in the show notes. And Kate, where can our listeners find you? You can find me at uh, on Twitter at the OG Kennedy. That's the is in the OG is an original gangster Kennedy like the dead president. You can find me on Instagram at the PG. PG is in the movie t- uh, rating uh, Kennedy because it's Instagram. Uh, you can find my OnlyFans at theogkennedy.com. You can also read uh, my website if I ever get back to updating it. I started a blog post today. We'll see. 27 is really going to be my year, guys. I think I think it's going to be. I'm going to buckle down. Okay, so if you want to see that, you can go to semiprocockjockey.com. You can also listen to my other podcast, Cam Girl Chronicles, where I interview cam girls from all over the world. We're on a hiatus right now between season one and season two, but all of season one is available at camgirlpod.com. And you guys, by the way, don't have to pay us to support the show. You can also leave us a comment, subscribe, tell all your friends, your family. That would make us happy. And or if you decide to join us on Patreons, We have stuff there. Is it new? It's probably not because Patreon definitely doesn't allow it. You could follow me, Alice, at Rational Blonde on all the platforms, mostly Twitter. You could follow the podcast on all the places at TGOM Podcast. You can also just join us next week. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.